Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts, but we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why? A penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, brought to you by Issue One. For the second of our conversations here on Swamp Stories, I reached out to the co-founder of the AND campaign. His voice and perspective is among the most unique I've come across in American politics. And my hunch is, if you've liked our sometimes contrarian take on political reform, you may really enjoy what today's guest has to share. So without further ado, this is episode 18, a conversation with Justin Gibney of the AND campaign. I'd like to just start with giving you a chance to tell us the story of and campaign. I think it kind of just starts with my journey. Uh, so I'm an attorney by trade, was doing uh, political consulting and campaign management for a while. And just realized that as I was doing it in the city of Atlanta in a very progressive space, that when I was talking to the candidates that, you know, that I was running their campaigns or I was talking to, to friends who wanted to run for office, it became very clear that they felt like they had to surrender some of their, their Christian conviction. And it didn't make sense to me that, you know, you know, there are a lot of biblical Christians, Orthodox Christians uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and it didn't make sense to me that coming from a community like that, you would have to run like you're from Midtown or something like that. Right. And I was and so I started to think, why is that? Why, why is that the case? Uh, and it became clear there just wasn't a lot of organization from the church around that. And that because we were in a progressive space, I think even though. It's a small group. I think the kind of secular progressive folks in some of these larger cities are better organized, have more resources. And so they can kind of control the reward and punishment mechanism in urban politics, even if, you know, even as the minority. So I I started to see that. I said, man, I got to do something about this. At the same time, I had friends who were Republicans who felt like this is probably during the Tea Party time that they weren't allowed to be as compassionate as they thought they wanted to be. Um, and so I began to identify, along with the co-founders of the AND campaign, this this false dichotomy where when you went into politics, you either had to go to the left. And if you go to the left, you're going to surrender your convictions. You go to the right, you're going to surrender some of the compassion or the focus on some justice issues and really began to believe that at Christ- as Christians, we can't do either, uh, that we had to be both compassionate and maintain our convictions. And in meeting uh, Show Baraka and Angel Maldonado, who are the other two co-founders of the AND campaign, 
that's kind of where the conversation started. Before that, I had created a group called Crucifix and Politics that was just me and other Christian kind of political strategists and folks who are running their county parties, stuff like that. And we just started to talk through these issues. But then I decided to broaden it and reach out to to young pastors and artists and all that stuff. And that's kind of where the Ant Campaign came from. But Ant Campaign literally means it's trying to get rid of the false dichotomy and talk about compassion and conviction, love and truth, justice and moral order, and how those things work together and are interdependent rather than being at odds or mutually exclusive. So it's interesting, you jumped right into that false dichotomy you talked about. It's one of the things that made me so interested in the work that you're doing. Going back to when I ran for Congress, I I challenged my Republican incumbent congressman uh, in my 20s and, and almost won, but one of the things that was the most frustrating to me, even having grown up around politics, was the expectation, which just seemed so unrealistic to me and naive, frankly, that we would all agree with each other 100% 100% of the time, based on the team we had picked politically. Because it, it just it seems to me that it, it's self-evident that our experiences and our fears and the things that we've been through in life, our pain, our fate, all these things give us, a, if we're honest with ourselves, I think a nuanced perspective when we consider political issues. And so you guys write about false choices in your book. And I was fascinated by, you're sort of speaking right to me because I've always felt like Really, both parties peddled in, only offering sort of this choice that says that, you know you're right, or this this choice that says you're wrong. You know, depending on the the party. How do we move beyond? It? And I think this cycle feels especially full of false choices. How do we move past that and encourage Americans and particularly people of faith to see that this doesn't have to be my way or the highway or red or blue? Yeah, I think first by understanding that's not just the way it is. You know, some people say, well, that's just the way it is. I have to accept it. No, that's the way it is because we've accepted it. Uh, And that's the only reason that it exists. It makes it very easy on the parties because all they really have to do is demonize the other side and say, hey, we're your only option. Kind of take it or leave it. But that's not the way it should be. And I think the first thing Christians have to do is not necessarily get rid of the parties or step away from partisanship altogether. I don't think that's necessary. I think we just have to put it in perspective. We have to make sure that our political parties are not part of our identity. So you should be able to uh, insult my political party, critique my political party. And I shouldn't feel like you're critiquing uh, me necessarily or insulting me because that's not who I am. I just use my party as a tool. And once Christians can kind of use their party as a tool to do God's bidding, uh, to do, you know, to do, as I often say, to defend human dignity and to promote human flourishing, then it's not, we don't expect as much from our, you know, from our party. We're willing to push back on them. We're willing to critique them because we're not, you know, our, our value and we're not trying to justify ourselves through defending a party that, you know, most of this stuff, all this stuff is made with human hands and is certainly um, not infallible, but we often treat it that way. So we just have to separate ourselves as far as our identity from our political party and from our ideological tribes. How much of this do you think, and when I say that, how much of the division that we see today and just the rank partisanship might be generational? And, and what I mean by that, I guess, is that, so I, wa- I watched the first political or the, the first presidential debate, as we all did. And one of the things I realized coming out of it was I didn't see a single person under 40, regardless of their political affiliation, who really thought that was a great conversation. None of them seemed real satisfied with the way that went. And it it made me think, as I have for some time, 
Not that uh, younger Americans are somehow going to save the day, but I do wonder if, if some of the depths of our divisions do pass over time. I, so, yes and no. I think that a lot of folks that I know, some of them that are younger are less partisan, but they're not less tribal. And so even though it's not about their party, it definitely is about whether they're progressive or especially a lot of my progressive fans are very, you know, tribal, uh, whether they're progressive or conservative. So maybe it's not as partisan in some sense, because I don't think the people that people people don't really like their parties like that. Right. And, and younger people don't either. But it's still tribal, which is really part of the problem as well, that we see these try and we really our whole framework for engaging politics is, is whether you're a secular progressive or you're on that secular progressive side or you're on that conservative side. What the end campaign is saying, your framework for engaging politics should be as a Christian. And if we have a Christian and kind of biblical centered framework, there's room for me and you to disagree. You and I can disagree on the marginal tax rate all day. The Bible doesn't speak directly to that. But there are certain things, whether it be the sanctity of life, whether it be uh, criminal justice, that we should be in the same ballpark on and we should be able to work together to make better. Uh, and that's what I think our focus should be. But we got to get rid of these. You know, our, our whole understanding of politics comes through some ideological frame that that is really flawed. I fear you're right that the tribalism among young people is the same, even though we've we've grown cynical about the parties. All right. So let's fast forward to the final presidential debate. And Justin Gibney is called in to give a few words of pep talk to both President Trump and Vice President Biden. Given how all of this has gone down, what are your words of advice in the last time they speak to the nation before people vote? What are your words of advice to both of them? Be presidential. Uh, be responsible with what, the, what you say. You know, that first debate showed me, and I do, I'm going to be honest, I didn't think it was equally bad for both sides. I didn't think Biden had a great debate, but I thought as far as the interruptions and all that go, I think that the president... I mean, it, it was, you know, it's hard to excuse what he did. But I would say, remember that these are people we're looking for solutions for hurting people. Uh, don't you know, don't let the partisanship or your own egos get in the way of knowing that people need answers. And we really want to know what you're going to do to solve these problems that people are suffering today because of some of the issues that were going on. And so I would just try to uh, encourage them both to to think about the people to actually answer the questions. That's one of the problems we probably had from the uh, on both sides from the uh, uh, vice presidential debate. Answer the questions. Be respectful. And, and let's let's treat this country. You know, let's treat this office and this country the way they deserve to be treated. All right. Well, I'll put you on the spot one more time about the presidential election, and then we'll go back to bigger issues that will live long after. And we'll be talking about long after this race. We focus a lot on the worst qualities of these two candidates. And, and I'd say in a lot of ways, it's e easier to. Maybe that's just kind of, we're fallen, right? So it's easier for us to critique people than it is to find the good. If you had to look at these two men, one of whom is going to be the next president, what's the best quality you see in President Trump? What's the best redeeming quality you see in Vice President Biden? Yeah. So for, for uh, President Trump, I would say uh, I do, you know, have an appreciation for for his relationship with his kids, uh, how he treats his, you know, how he treats his children. And it seems like they are very close and he tries to keep them close to him. So I think there there is virtue in that. And uh, I think there's a lot some people, you know, others could learn from, you know, his relationship with his children. As far as Joe Biden, I just think he connects with people. 
Uh, I think he doesn't come off, you know, he seems like he's trying to understand the common man in a real sincere, sincere way. Um, and so to some people that has come off as, you know, maybe he's not as smart, but I think, you know, with all the technocrats we have all over today, it's kind of refreshing to see someone who seems to connect with people and try to understand the common man's plight, because there's a huge divide, unfortunately, between uh, in some instances, our political class and just the grassroots. I've heard a lot of pastors talk about, we'll take a step back away from the election and we'll, we'll close talking about the election. I've heard pastors, I think, speak much more eloquently in the last several months about racial justice, social justice than politicians. I mean, I, I think you know, it seems like politicians want to score political points. And I've just time and time again been encouraged at the way that pastors like in my community, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a couple hours north of you in Chattanooga, and I've heard black pastors sit on stage with white pastors and guys from totally different neighborhoods and talk about these things in a thoughtful way that the politicians can't quite get to. You know, Ann Campaign is Christian. Ann Campaign is interested in policy. Ann Campaign's logo includes the words social justice and biblical values. What is social justice through the lens of you know, biblical principles or biblical values as opposed to, or is it the exact same thing as social justice when you hear about it on CNN? It's different than uh, what I think you might hear on uh, CNN or MSNBC. Uh, and that's part of the, we all almost are trying to reclaim that word rather than letting, you know, rather letting it go completely left. When we talk about social justice, I think you have to start with human dignity. And if we all believe that humans have an innate dignity, if we believe because we were uh, created in the image of God, that we should be treated to a certain standard. Right. And that's kind of when we talk about social justice, we're talking about biblical justice uh, when it comes to people treating them to a certain standard based on their human dignity in a social in a social context. So to us, all all social justice is is biblical justice applied to a social context. So when someone is, you know, when someone's accused of a crime, how do we make sure that they don't serve more time than they deserve to serve? We see that happening. You know, we see uh, unjust imprisonment in the Bible over and over again. When you take someone, a man, especially out of their home and keep them in a prison longer than they were supposed to, it doesn't just affect them. It affects their community. It affects their children. And we would say that social justice justice would say that, number one, there shouldn't be any partiality within those laws. And we have to make sure there's no disparity in how long people are being imprisoned because they have human dignity. And to me, that's what social justice is. It's just a social application of biblical justice. How do you feel as, you know, a, a Georgian, um, a, a Christian, uh, somebody who's, you know, a, a young American about how the conversation in our country has gone in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a presidential race, as we've revisited a lot of these racial issues? I mean, I, I sensed that there was this sort of several weeks of due diligence and kind of genuine soul searching, due diligence on the issues that are, you know, that are relevant to political reform, soul searching of things maybe we had assumed had been addressed that hadn't been properly addressed. Those few weeks seem to then devolve back into tribalism. Feels that way to me. How do you feel like that conversation is gone and how can we pick it up in a more productive way after the election? I think you described it fairly well. During the crisis, during the COVID crisis, we were forced to, all of us were forced to look at this racialized violence that was going on at the very same time. 
there was nothing else to look at. Right. And so we were forced to look at it. And I think it did gain acknowledgement from groups that normally weren't really acknowledging what was going on in the country because they couldn't look away. Since then, because of different things that have gone on, there were great. There are some, you know, most of those protests were peaceful protests. And thank God for everyone who uh, took part in those protests, because I think they were necessary. But then we did see some violence. Right. We did see that conversation go into a direction where I think we digressed from where we were headed. Uh, but I do think that it, it is um, salvageable. And I think people are still people. A lot of people still saw what needed to be seen as far as how certain people in society are treated differently. And we and, and I think what's what's called for in the conversation now to get it back on track, to gain some ground and go in the right direction is the church. I honestly think we see the far right going in the wrong direction. We see the far left going in the wrong direction. And it's time for the church to step up and show a true example of justice. You know, it it upsets me when some people say, well, I see that distorted view of justice on the left. And therefore, I'm not going to touch anything justice related because it's all Marxism. That's the completely wrong response. The right response is to say, no, I'm not going to not deal with it. I'm going to put a better example out there and show people how to do justice in the right way. And that's what the end campaign is doing. That's what we're trying to do with our prayer and act, action justice initiative, where we've brought together the you know, National Association of Evangelicals, the Church of uh, God and Christ, which is one of the largest African-American organizations, several Hispanic organizations, several, um, uh, not several, but an Asian evangelical organization. We think we were brought together kind of an um, unprecedented coalition of biblical organizations to address the issue of racial justice. And I think that's really where the answer is. We'll be right back after this short break. Today's episode is brought to you by Future Hindsight, a podcast that aims to spark civic engagement through in-depth conversations with citizen changemakers. Join host Mila Atmos as she uncovers what gives America's most seasoned political experts and activists hope to change the future. Future Hindsight believes we can make the country better by working together and provides the building blocks for change through in-depth interviews with the men and women making it happen. You can listen to Future Hindsight wherever you get your podcasts or futurehindsight.com. We're back. This is a tough question to even frame, but this president has not one of his strong suits has not been handling racial questions well. And he's left, at times, a lot of us on the political right wondering what, what he means. Is there some motive or strategy to the fact that sometimes he speaks very clearly, sometimes he doesn't? I sense that if I was a black man, I would feel... Uh, often, like this president uh, left things open-ended that should never be left open-ended. And I, so the, the question is how, if the president were to get reelected, how and what, what should he do? What should Christians in his uh, solar system, in, in, you know, kind of the have, because there, there have been prominent Christians, and some of them are, you know, Atlantans, who've been in the White House frequently talking to the president about faith issues. How could the president um, walk back some of the division that he's caused and be a healer? Or is that possible? Yeah, I, I always think it's possible. I mean, I think my faith tells me that nobody is irredeemable. So I don't, I don't go along with that, that narrative. 
I think the first thing he would have to do is apologize for the things that he said, you know, what he said about other countries, countries that have, you know, minor, you know, that are majority minority. Uh, those things hurt. Uh, things that have been said about immigrants uh, coming over the border and, and, and who they are and, and how they should be treated. The first step would be to say, you know, I was wrong. Uh, I didn't say that the correct way. I haven't done the right things and I want to move forward. And then creating a policy that shows that he's serious about doing that. Uh, that is possible. Um, unfortunately, I'm not I'm not sure that the will is there, but I always hold out hope that that's the case. As far as the folks who supported him, I'm a true believer that once you vote somebody in, your primary responsibility is not just to justify and defend everything they did. Your prim- primary responsibility is to hold them accountable. And that's for Christians on both sides. I, I wrote in um, I voted for Barack Obama, but I wrote in Christianity Today that urban Christians let Barack Obama down because instead of holding him accountable, we were just trying to defend him. Uh, and you cannot tr- you cannot leave politicians to their own devices, because if you're not pushing them, somebody else is. And I think for Christians to vote in Trump and then not hold him accountable, to be more worried about defending him than saying, yes, what he said was wrong and that he needs to you know, he needs to apologize for that is, is unfortunate. Uh, and so I think that's that would really be a good place to start. And that brings us back to tribalism, doesn't it? I mean, I think that's, again, it's a, it's my primary irritation on Twitter. You know, you open up Twitter and I just so often long for people to call out their own tribe. You know, it's not that hard, uh, frankly, to see that there's hypocrisy on both sides. But often you're right. We just need knee-jerk to defense, you know, and you'll see if you watch over any continuum, you'll see people on both sides. They'll almost change positions in order to uh, constantly be defending. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, we, we've got to change the narrative on that. It's not brave to shout across the other side, mostly to people who aren't even listening to you about how ter- terrible they are. I'm not saying there's not room for that and that we don't need to kind of hold other people on the other side accountable. It's much more brave to turn around and look at your own tribe and say, hey, here's some things we need to fix. And what people don't get, we sort of feel like we're empowering our opposition if we're honest and we hold our side accountable. No, what you're doing is you're gaining credibility because there's no reason for somebody on the other side to listen to you if you have obvious issues that you're covering up and you won't be honest about them, but then you try to hold them accountable for something they're doing. One of the best ways to have a conversation, I think, is by saying, hey, here are the things you get right. Let me affirm what you're right on and your critique on us. Now maybe you can dis- now you disarm someone to say or diffuse the conversation to say, now can we talk about some of the issues I see on your side? Because I'm not trying to come out of this faultless and I hope you aren't either. OK, so another election related question. And then I want to talk about 2021, regardless of who the president is. Um What's the role of people of faith in the days after the election? And as you know, there's a lot of conversation about uh, how long it'll take to count votes and whether either side will accept their results. And the president has, uh, you know, caused probably added to this confusion through some of the things that he said. Uh, but in those what feel like they could be very consequential days following the election, how can people of faith, you know? put their faith in action in a way that's productive? I think one of the main things we can do is be peacemakers. I don't know exactly, you know, neither of us knows exactly what's going to happen or how long it's going to take to figure out who actually won. But what we do know is it's not going to be pretty. Uh, that I can almost guarantee you. And so I think it's a chance for Christians to, to put things into perspective, to understand that regardless of how it goes, this is not an ultimate thing. And then to be peacemakers. 
to be the ones to say, hey, we're going to get through this, but we're going to get through this through emphasizing our common ground. And that may mean stepping away from the partisanship for a second and saying, hey, let's focus on something we can do together that's not so partisan. And again, that's where I think this uh, the Prayer and Action Justice Initiative will be helpful, too, because we really want to step away and say, let's do something as a church and, and get away, not ignore what's going on politically. But let's let's set that aside to focus on some other things that can actually bring us together and help people. And tell us a little bit about the Prayer and Action Initiative. Yeah. So the Prayer and Action Justice Initiative is a coalition of, 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 of organizations from the AND campaign to the to World Relief, to the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, uh, Prison Fellowship, the Church of, God in, uh, Church of God in Christ that have come together to say we say to say that the Bible speaks on justice. The Bible has something to say about justice in the social and racial context. And it's time for Christians to lead. It's time for Christians to speak unequivocally about how we feel about injustice and that we want to do it in the right way. Um, and so really what we're trying to do is give Christians on ramps to engage those justice issues. And I think that's one of the keys to any type of racial reconciliation. It can't just be kumbaya sessions. It has to be self-sacrificial. It has to be us coming out of our comfort zones, looking at policy in a nonpartisan way, and then also looking at um sharing resources. And we do that through our churches, helping churches um, uh, challenge where we've raised $1.3 million for churches in low-income areas. Lastly, let's let's go here. Let's talk about political reform. This is what issue one is known for. Specifically in Washington, we're known as the bipartisan political reform group, specifically working a lot of money and politics reforms, limiting the influence of money, trying to end dark money, which, you know, the law doesn't intend for dark money to exist, and closing other loopholes that end up undermining the intent of our laws. You know, I've always looked at my work with Issue 1 as being in defense of the least of these. Uh, and, and I say this having grown up around politics, but common sense also just reveals in 2020 that People with a lot of resources, companies with money, buy their way to the front of the line. And I don't think that was the intent of our founders. It's not the way our country functions best. So I've always seen a role for Christians and, and other people of faith to take an interest in the rules that govern our political system because they do tend to work to the advantage of people who have money and work against people who don't and don't have access. So, I mean, the follow-up is, or the question there is, do you, does that make sense to you? Or is, I mean, you know, again, I mean, I acknowledge that I'm a unicorn. I grew up in this stuff. And so it matters to me because I was always fascinated by campaign finance laws and who they benefit and who they didn't. And I don't think it's as simple as they benefit the right side or the left side. But I do sense that when you, when you engage in the fight for reform with the goal being that it function, that, that our democracy, that our republic functions for everybody, that I've always felt, just as a believer, that um, there's an alignment to the values of, of Jesus. But there are other people who see them as siloed very separately. Do you see a connection there? Oh, I certainly see a connection because I think you're talking about people's voice and you're talking about people counting and, and what people think and believe and their interests mattering. And unfortunately, in this country, sometimes we haven't done a very good job of making sure that everybody mattered, that everybody was considered and that we weren't giving huge advantages to certain groups. And I think you hit it on the head to some extent for whether they're 
conservatives, liberals or whatever, people with money have advantages in our civic process that they probably shouldn't have. Uh, something else that I would I would add to that is, is voter rights. Uh, I think that's something that is worth having a conversation about. Uh, it's worth investigating to see if these allegations are real. And I've gone into Republican spaces and said just that, that it's one of those things that have more transparency doesn't hurt anybody. So to, to so to investigate this and, and to make the process as transparent as possible helps a lot of people and, and kind of. I think that's what, you know, when I go talk to the concerned black clergy and things like that, they will tell me that voter rights are one of the main reasons that they don't really vote with white evangelicals and things of that nature. Because if you don't want us to be part of the process, then it seems that, you know, I don't know that we, you know, you would want to give your political capital to, to someone in that position. So my, my, my proposal is that, yeah, we just open it up. We make it as transparent as possible, but our civic process certainly needs some reform. And I'm uh, excited about some of the work you guys are doing in that regard. All right, we'll wrap up with this. I One of the reasons I love what Ann Campaign's doing is I have a feeling that 2021 will look pretty much the same for you guys, regardless of who the next president is. So tell us what's next. Yeah, the big thing for us is we, you know, we're expanding our chapters. And so we, we have, you know, probably about 15 more chapters that I'll be launching in the, in the near term. And so we're excited about that, the expansion of our organization around the nation. And really, we'll be putting a lot of force, and I keep bringing this up, but we'll be putting a lot of our effort into the Prayer and Justice Initiative and to continue to raise civic literacy among Christians and help them apply their values to the the biggest issues of the day. Uh, The Christian witness is so much more dynamic and brilliant than conservatism and and progressivism ideologically. Uh, And so we want Christians to see that and be Christian first. And so we'll just be pushing our message, as you may know, we had a, a book come out in July, which is Compassion and Conviction, the Ant Campaign's Guide to uh, Faithful Civic Engagement. And so we'll be using that to just give Christians a framework to better engage uh, the civic space. Well, Justin Gibney, thanks for being the second guest on our Conversations sub-series on Swamp Stories. Love the work you're doing and uh, and hope we can be partners and, and friends moving forward and uh, you know look forward to better days ahead. I hope so too. Thanks for having me, man. On the next episode of Swamp Stories, I'm going to interview Leonard Downey Jr., who for 24 years ran the newsroom of the Washington Post. We'll unpackage what happened in November and December of 2000 when a recount took the attention of the country. And we'll talk about how it might relate to the unknown of November 2020. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independents to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at swampstories.org. I'm your host, Weston Wong. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome. Producers Evan Ottenfield and Sidney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from ParkerPodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.